Okay, quiet on the set, everybody. Stand by. Roll camera. Speed. Roll sound. Speed. Market. And cue talent. Hello, and welcome to This Week in Production, the podcast. I'm your host, Art Aldridge. I had recorded a podcast with my colleague, Tom Chartrand, who you remember from numerous episodes. We were both in Minnesota for a sled dog race that we were doing some live coverage of, and we decided on a three-hour drive from Duluth, Minnesota to Minneapolis to record a podcast or two in the car. And they were pretty good, except when I got back and I started listening to them, the sound quality was pretty poor. We had used the new Apple AirPod Pros and voice memo recording. We thought it would be okay, but it kind of sucked. So I'm re-recording my side of the tale. If you remember last week, I alluded to, I was doing a job, it was for a foreign broadcast entity. There were a lack of details, there was a lack of information, there was a lack of payment, they didn't honor all the terms in their contract. I, I almost pulled the plug at the 11th hour. I decided to go ahead and do the job anyway. It was going to be two parts for me. I was going to be directing multi-camera out of a satellite truck and I had a secondary pan tilt zoom PTZ fly pack kit that Tom was going to be running at a separate uh, set of venues, and then we were going to meet at the end of the race. It was a three-day broadcast, and I was flying from New York. I had to fly into Minneapolis because I couldn't get a big enough plane direct into Duluth. Tom met me. He was in Austin, and he flew into Duluth, and I met him there. Quite a long distance, I drove in my rental car a total of 780 or so miles between Minneapolis, Duluth, where the race started, and a place called Grand Portage, where the race finished. And that's almost 10 miles or so from the Canada border, so very far north. I guess that's considered the Upper Peninsula area. The job at the end of the day came out well, but it wasn't without its complications. And there were some complications that could not have been anticipated, but there were some that with a little more planning and proper um, location scouting, we could have been more prepared. So the first problem was that we got to the venue for the start of the race, which is a uh, small bar, famous bar, I guess, in that area called Billy's Bar. And we met the satellite truck, we met the camera operators, and I guess there was a problem with some of the antennas on the satellite or the amplifier. I'm not exactly sure what was wrong. But we set up all the cameras, tested positions, and then we couldn't get an uplink to push a signal test. And this was about 4 o'clock on Saturday afternoon. The race was going to kick off at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning. So we left the venue not knowing whether we'd have two trucks because they'd have to bring in a second truck just to feed or if they were going to get one truck to replace the other one and we'd have to you know set up all the cameras again so that was a little bit of uncertainty I didn't know what was happening I wasn't being 
communicated to directly. So we went back to the hotel, we had dinner, we went to bed, got up in the morning, shut up the venue, we realized that, okay, they it was going to be one unit instead of two to handle the live switch, which would be much easier than having two trucks, two drivers, and two sets of logistics of moving those you know big rigs around. It wasn't the newest truck. It didn't have all the um, services that I would have configured had I been producing the job myself, but it basically had some old Panasonic cameras, had a couple of fiber links. It had uh, some very old uh, recording technology, uh, Blu-ray disc, and you know limited comms, but it was enough to do a three camera switch, a little Sony switcher, nothing too fancy. And we were feeding it back to the studio in Norway. So we had some cellular service in Duluth, but then as we started to move north and the races as the crow flies, probably about 275 miles or so north towards Canada, you start to lose cell phone reception. And I don't mean like spotty. I mean, there's no cell phone reception at all. And then you'll hit a small little town and there might be an antenna and you have coverage for about three minutes and then you have nothing again for maybe a half hour. That posed greater challenges than almost anything else we faced. For one, the race, we didn't have any GPS coordinates for the checkpoints. They were very vague, like Highway 2 and this snowmobile trail. And maybe if you lived in that area, you would know where that was. But most of the crew didn't know where those locations were. I certainly didn't know, being from New York. And we didn't have any GPS coordinates to just punch in and, and go. So that was a little bit of a mystery. But also imagine that if you didn't put your GPS location in when you left a place with cellular service, you couldn't reach anyone to ask where you were or if you were going right. Like it was real, like, you know, we rely so much on, on cell phones and GPS that it was actually very hard. We had no paper maps. We had no backup planet. That part of it was very frustrating because sometimes you're traveling in the, in the dark of night and you're trying to find a location and you could literally be driving around for an hour and not knowing where you are, not being able to reach anyone. Very, very frustrating. Sometimes there was one instance, in fact, where Tom had left to go ahead to a checkpoint to get set up with the fly pack that I had. And he got there and there was no cell phone coverage. He had to drive back eight miles just to call me to tell me, okay, he got there and he found the setup and, you know, to give him some more instructions. So that part of it was not planned out well. We didn't have sat phones for everyone. So that, that part was a challenge. And the other, the other piece that made it frustrating was where we didn't have cell phone reception. We had no communication with the studio, the control room in Norway. So we were literally flying blind, hoping that what we were giving them was the right thing. They had a IFB for the talent, but it was based on cellular. So without cellular, no luck. The satellite truck didn't have any capability to do cellular um, phone service or data links. 
only, you know, C-band transmission. So that part of it wasn't really ideal. I would expect a truck that had a little more capability to, to bridge all those signals together. It would have made everyone's life easier. So, you know, we, we managed to, to get to the locations. You know, we had some issues with the, the fiber links and the technology. It wasn't a fully baked system. It was a little bit of like, you know, put together with tape and bubble gum. But for the most part, it worked. The crew was great. They really, you know, busted their butts. I didn't have any control. I didn't have any say. They, you know, the Norwegian entity booked it. They just said, here, this is who's providing the service. But they were great. They busted their butts. They stood out at their cameras sometimes for four hours at a clip. And, you know, in the cold, that's not an easy job. And then we'd have to pack it all up in a hurry, jump up to the next checkpoint, set it all up again, and continued on that for three days. So that, that, was you know problematic also problematic for me i did not plan well for my clothing of course i had checked the weather forecast for duluth i saw that it was going to be you know 30s not sunny 30s no snow no rain so i said okay i don't need big parkas i don't need all this stuff plus i'm not going to be outside that much i'm mostly going to be in this satellite truck so I, I didn't really pack my heavy Alaska outdoor gear. And that turned out to be a mistake because I was quite cold. And when you're cold and you're, you know, just starting your work day and you know it's going to be cold all day, that plays games with your mind. So that was on me. I was able to borrow a parka and double up on some socks, but I just, I didn't plan that out well. And I, I should have been more prepared, but I was so, I was so laden with, with baggage and I traveled by myself. So I had a, you know, haul six road cases and luggage uh, and a laptop bag. It, it wasn't easy. And I just didn't want to have another bag of heavy outdoor clothing with me. So that's on me. The funny thing is though, we, um, we got to the end of the race, and so then we had cell phone coverage. And when we had cell phone coverage, I could use my iPhone to have uh, intercom. They use this uh, Clearcom setup, and Clearcom, I guess, has a web-based app that can tie into the main intercom system in Norway. And so I could listen, I could talk, I could get IFB to the talent. It was actually a pretty slick system. And... I could talk to the director and I was explaining to the director that while we're at this venue by uh, 1 p.m. and we have a satellite window from 1 to 5, there wasn't going to be any action at the checkpoint till at least 5 p.m. I mean, nothing. The, you know, the, the winner was going to come in. He would be the first one there. So they wanted pictures. And I explained to them, I said, there won't be any. We, we won't even have the satellite up and the cameras up. And we won't be able to push picture until, you know, maybe 2, 30, 3 o'clock. But that didn't seem to sink in or they didn't understand what I was saying. You know, there was a, a bit of a language barrier. They were, they, you know, they were talking in their native Norwegian 
tongue. So I didn't understand everything they were saying. I didn't know if they understood everything I was saying. So there was a language barrier plus the time zone and all that stuff. But we get the cameras up. We get the dish pointed. We put the pictures up on the bird. They download link. They're seeing our feeds in Norway. And the director, of course, gets on. And he wants pictures of people and dogs and mushers. <laughs> and I explained to him again that there's nobody here. All I could give you is a pretty picture of Lake Superior and a picture of the finish line with no one there. So that wasn't, I guess, ideal in his mind, but I had no control over it. We were able to make, you know, a nice little uh, multicam switch once we had uh, mushers coming in, but they wanted interviews and we had no control over where the musher went after he finished and we couldn't get him back and we needed, you know, to have him in a certain area for lighting and it was getting dark and we had to put the gain up and these were old, you know, two third inch EMG cameras that are not great in low light. You push the gain, they get noisy. You know, I think the director assumed I had someone shading cameras. I didn't, you know, it was very uh, low tech, low budget type of production, but I don't know that they understood that in the studio. So whatever, we we did our job. It worked out well. We, we accomplished what we accomplished. But even more importantly for me, I actually was able to prove out some questions I had about the viability of my PTZs in the cold weather. I mentioned I had two HE-130 cameras, Panasonic robotic cameras. I used um, Cat5e on 300-foot spools to power them and to bring back pictures on NDI. I have a little fly pack that had a switch and a router. The switch provided uh, power over Ethernet, the PoE Plus, as they say. And it bridged in my PTZ controller and my laptop and my encoder, which was a Teradek Video Go. And we took basically all the signals into Wirecast. Telestream makes a piece of software called Wirecast. And I use that for switching and for graphics and cameras. And then I output that signal from my MacBook Pro to a, a DeckLink Ultra Studio SDI out of Wirecast into the Teradek Video Go. Then the Video Go went up to my Wowza cloud server and then it relayed it to Norway to, I think they were downloading it on um, some kind of AVI West decoder. And my, my feeling was that they didn't really understand IP video. I think the studio was built obviously for you know SDI and baseband video. So they were always trying to feed it into something to convert it. And that part was a little challenging. We weren't sure that they were really getting good quality feeds based on some of the things they were asking for. But for me, the, the fly pack worked really well. I, I used these new stands. They're basically speaker stands, but they go up to about, I would say, six and a half, seven feet in height. So they're great for getting above the, the heads of people in a crowd. They're very sturdy. They're lightweight. They're aluminum. And I can put three of them in a tripod tube. And um, it's not overweight, which is critical for a fly pack. 
So I used those, they worked great. I had the HE-130s and I had these little Porter Brace covers for them just in case it snowed or rained. And they seemed to work pretty well. It gave the camera a little protection. No blips in the stream, no blips in the uh, NDI feed and everything was great. It worked out so that I had the whole fly pack in three cases. You know, the one rack with the switch and the router and some power distribution. One case to carry the robotic cameras and mounts. One case for the reels, actually four cases, and then one case for the tripod tubes. One, one tube with the three tripods. So that was the kit, very portable, very easy to move around. I have some other pieces and other racks, but for this job, since I was just gonna be NDI, I didn't really need them. If I needed baseband video, I would use a second rack that would have a uh, fiber bridge and fiber interconnects and ISO recordings and uh, audio and some, you know, AV. So this case, I didn't need it because I was just really feeding one or two cameras at a time. And we were only putting up a single switched out from the robotics. So it all worked out well. Like I said, the hassles with lack of information were frustrating. It was frustrating that I didn't get a uh, prepayment. So I am now relying on them to pay me the whole thing in a timely fashion. I'm out of pocket for you know travel and expenses and some server-related costs, bandwidth. So fingers crossed that that does not become a problem, but I, I don't think it will. Hard to say, though. I'm disappointed I couldn't get the podcast that we recorded together with Tom because he had a couple of interesting perspectives on some things. I think I summarized some of his points in there. But in other news, I just got notification that the last piece of my new Mac Pro system has shipped. Those are the Pro XDR stands. So I will have, by the next podcast, some time on my new system with the new displays and I'll have a, a more streamlined desk without two keyboards and two mice. I will give you my opinions and some details on my, my performance evaluations on the machine, workflow evaluations, and I'll maybe give you a little summary on the good, bad, and the ugly of the new Mac Pro. So that's it for now. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. That was a lot of fun. It would be even better if you could add something to the conversation. Drop me an email at thisweekinproduction at gmail.com. Or even better, call our new TWIP voice mailbox and leave us a message. 601-564-TWIP. That's 601-564-8947. Also, a reminder that This Week in Production is available on all major podcast platforms, including Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. So please subscribe to get every episode. Lastly, if you like what you hear, would you mind giving me a rating or a review? I'd appreciate that. Okay, that's a wrap on this week in production. Thanks for listening.